morning, everybody. The Bible reading today is from Revelation 3. We're reading the last of the letters to the seven churches. So from verse 14 in Revelation 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, cold nor hot. I wish that you were one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you, Carolyn. Well, I reckon that of all the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches, it's this last one, his letter to the church in Laodicea, that sticks in our minds the most. It's not just, just because of the most graphic mind picture of Jesus almost vomiting. Uh, verse 20 is one of the most heartwarming appeals in the Bible. And it's been used to great effect by Nikki Gumbel in the Alpha course. So Nikki, um, if we could have the slide up, thank you. He refers to the painting of Jesus by Holman Hunt, which is on display in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Holman depicts Jesus standing by a door overgrown with weeds and vines. It's the door to each of our lives. And Jesus is knocking on the door and he's saying to each of us, here I am, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will eat with that person and they with me. And Nicky Gumbel points out that in that painting, there is no door handle. And that's not a mistake, it's deliberate. Jesus is not forcing his way in. He's not barging his way into our lives. Rather, each of us has to open up the door to our lives from the inside, and we need to let him in. This is a picture of the grace of Jesus Christ to each of us. But it's clearly also an invitation, an invitation to open up our own lives to Christ and to let him in. And so this letter in it stands, there's this heartwarming invitation which just stands out. Okay. But it's also extremely hard, isn't it, to get away from Jesus' indictment of this church being lukewarm and then his 
most damning pronouncement of him wanting to spit them out. And it's impossible for us to read this and then not to ask the question, well, is that me? Am I lukewarm? Is, is that us? Is our church lukewarm? Is it the case that Jesus, heaven forbid, wants to spit us out? And the question goes more acute, actually, when we consider that of all the churches described, all of the seven ones, our church probably most resembles this one. That is, um, you compare the other churches, we don't have the external pressure of being required to sacrifice to Caesar as a god like happened in Pergamum. Well, neither does the church in Laodicea. Um, that's Laodicea. We haven't given in to the external pressure on the whole of idolatry and overt sexual immorality, I think, right? Unlike the churches in Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira, but neither had this church. Jesus doesn't have this bone to pick with them. We haven't been kicked out of the local synagogue or diocese, um, <laughs> unlike believers in this church in Philadelphia, um, but neither had they in Laodicea. They hadn't been picked up on issues of doctrine or false teaching like the church in Thyatira. And like us, they're not poor like the church in Smyrna. They're reasonably wealthy. Which means that on the surface level of comparative pressures and wealth, we, of all the churches, we are most like the one in Laodicea. The one that Jesus says he wants to spit out of his mouth. And that makes for a very uncomfortable church service. Um, and I can tell you, it makes me, as the pastor of this church, extremely uncomfortable, because if Jesus was, if he was, to say this to the church, well, what would he say of the pastor who leads the church in this way? So we need to listen very carefully, both to what is being said and also to what is not being said, because this is a passage which I think people can easily draw wrong conclusions from and which I think can be mistaught as to what it means. It comes down to the question of what does lukewarm really mean? Now perhaps the interpretation that we most easily jump to is to think that a lukewarm Christian in this context is an average Christian. And we draw that conclusion because we think about temperature and lukewarm, we, we think is halfway between being hot and cold. And we say cold must be someone who is hostile to Christ, an angry unbeliever. And hot, that must be someone who's really on fire for Jesus, right? And then lukewarm is somewhere in between, that's the average Christian, which when you think about it must mean most of us because average is in the middle of the bell curve, right? Except if that's the case, by that interpretation, most of us are in really big trouble because by that, we would make Jesus feel sick and he wants to vomit us out. And by extension, it's only those who are totally on fire for Jesus who would then be saved. Maybe You've heard teaching like this yourself on this passage. I remember when I was at university, someone took me to this passage in the Bible and then asked the question, would you say that you're hot for the Lord? I mean, what would you say? I, oh, um, I hope so. <laughs> um, 
And then they said, well, how many times have you shared the gospel with someone in the last week? Um, have you shared it three times? No. Well, suddenly now I'm doubting my salvation because my assurance is now pegged to how many times I've shared the gospel in a week, you see? Like I said, this can be mistaught. Okay. Um, what does lukewarm mean? Um, there are two reasons why I think this interpretation is wrong. The first is the difficulty raised by Jesus saying, look, I wish you were either one or the other. I wish you were either hot or cold. Now, if it's the case that being cold means to be fiercely anti-Christian, why would Jesus want that for anyone at all? It's hard to imagine how Jesus, in his right mind, could say something like that, and Jesus is in his right mind, right? Okay. So, you know, would he really prefer a church of his to become Jesus-haters? The other problem, of course, is that geography and archaeology paints a different picture. Laodicea was the main city, if we can get a map, in the middle of the Lycus River Valley, situated in Turkey. It was built there because it was built on the intersection of trade routes to the north and to the east and the west. This is where the roads aligned. And that was a place to build a city if you wanted to grow wealthy. But the site of Laodicea was not chosen for its water supply. In fact, it didn't have any naturally occurring water supply. And you know that you need water for a city. Um, so what are they going to do? The other cities nearby did have good water supplies. Colossae was only 10 miles to the east. That was a city which was famous for its crystal clear, cool water. And then only six miles to the north was Hierapolis. That's a city famous still today for its hot thermal springs. And from such springs, it was from such springs that Laodicea got its water supply, bought into the city via aqueducts, which you can still see today. Now, sorry, Michelle, I think it's out of sync, but can you, yeah, there's, sorry, there's a picture of pipes somewhere. Where is it? Oh, you don't have it, I'm so sorry. Anyway, I had a picture of pipes. Um, this is, Sorry, those, those pools up there are in Hierapolis. Okay, gorgeous, gorgeous, hot thermal springs there. Wouldn't it be great to go? Now, however, all that white there is a buildup of calcium carbonate. Um, at a distance, on a clear day from Laodicea, you could look up into the hills and see Hierapolis and the water supply, and if you were from Laodicea, you would be reminded of the beauty of the water supply, but also how completely undrinkable it is. It was so rich in calcium that it made you want to vomit. By the time the hot water had made its way to Laodicea as well, it was not hot, it was lukewarm. It was undrinkable. People had to put it in earthen jars just to cool it down to make it barely drinkable. Okay. That's the context of Jesus' rebuke. Hot water is good. Cool water is great. But the lukewarm water of Laodicea is utterly, thoroughly pukesome. So what is it about this lukewarm church that is so sickening to Jesus? We could say that like the lukewarm water of Laodicea wasn't fit to drink and almost useless, that to Jesus, the people in this church 
were just like their water supply. They were good for nothing. But again, it begs the question, why? What was it about the Laodicean believers that made them lukewarm? Well, it comes out in the heart talk that we hear, we hear them talking about themselves, and Jesus quotes it back to them in verse 17. This is what they say. They say, Jesus says, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. This is your self-talk. This is what you secretly think about yourselves. It's what you say in your minds about yourselves. It's what you deeply believe is true. You know, um, when sort of the tape's playing but your brain's switched off, this is the sort of talk that comes out. I'm rich. I've acquired great wealth. I don't need a thing. This is what you believe deeply about yourselves. All of you, in fact. You say, I am rich. Exactly the sentiment of the city itself. Laodicea was wealthy, it was really wealthy. The city's self-talk was, I am rich. And it's what the church also thought, I am rich. Materially wealthy, but they were extending it further. I am rich, meaning we are the ones blessed by God. We are in God's good books, therefore we must be. We're so wealthy. Because otherwise, why would he have showered upon us so much? We're rich. And if you have wealth, if you live in a country like Australia, go to a lovely church in the hills, we can think of ourselves like this. God must like us. He's given us so much. Now, of course, you can say we are rich from the position of thinking yourself undeserving and a sense of being incredibly grateful at God's completely surprising um, grace. You might say, we are rich. We don't deserve it, you know, but he has made us this way. That's not how they were thinking. How they were thinking was the other way of saying we're rich, from a kind of sense of self-inflation, self-importance, entitlement, pride. Okay, we're rich, God likes us, and you better get used to the idea. We're in God's good books. Um, Jesus says, you say I'm rich. And then you say, I have acquired spiritual wealth, with the emphasis on I. I've acquired spiritual wealth through my own efforts, my own ability, my own cleverness. This is a boast. You know, if you want spiritual maturity, come to Laodicea. This, we have it in bucket loads. It's what the city boasted. As well as growing uh, rich through trade, the city itself was, was famous for its super soft black wool that it produced. And as well as that, they were a healing center. They specialized in a salve for eye disease. It was a niche market, made them very wealthy. The city was proud. And as with the city, so with the church. You say, I have acquired wealth. So that whatever riches they saw themselves having from God's perspective, they weren't grateful to God for them. They thought with pride that they had got them by their own efforts, or if they had been a gift, they'd be, well, they'd been more of a wage. They deserved it. Okay, and finally you say, I don't need a thing. And again, exactly like the city that they came from. As a city, Laodicea was so independently, so financially secure, that when an earthquake struck the city in AD 60 and completely totaled it, the city refused help from Caesar Augustus to come and rebuild, and instead, they funded it themselves because they didn't want to be beholden to Rome's generosity. 
That was precisely the mindset of the church. You say, I don't need a thing. Ongoing help in your struggle with sin, no thank you, we've got that. Ongoing help to love one another more deeply, no thank you, no, no need, we love each other quite well enough, thank you. Help from me, the Lord Jesus, to know your Father better, no thank you. Grace given to become more like God, more godly in character, no. Help of the Spirit for Christ to better dwell in your hearts through faith, no thank you. Wisdom and courage to make life decisions that are shaped by the gospel and by Jesus' return, no thank you. No, we're here, we've made all the decisions we need to, we don't need a thing. Do you hear what they're saying? Jesus, we know you're there, we have everything we need, we do not need you, we do not need a thing. Now they might not say it out loud and be so crass, but that was their self-talk. And according to Jesus, that attitude of heart, that self-talk, that was the thing that was so sickening to his stomach. His reaction uh, when he reflected on it wasn't just sort of mild concern or even deep pastoral worry or even a sense of personal rejection, which he might have been entitled to feel. Rather, it was a convulsing of his gut. It was the heaving of his innards. It was the rising of bile. It was the contraction of his esophagus. It was the desire to retch. It was the taste of vomit right coming up in his mouth because they were blind to their own spiritual condition. That's what happened. They said they were rich, already blessed, but they were poor, says Jesus. You're poor, you're so spiritually poor. It's not the case that natural, sorry, material wealth means spiritual wealth. They had, what did they not have? They, they had none of that sense of the true disciple who deeply feels, they know deep down that they need Christ. Is that true of you? You know, what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He didn't say blessed are the rich. He said blessed are the poor. It's not those who boast in themselves. Who are, no, it's the poor in spirit. Jesus said blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said blessed are those who mourn, meaning mourn their sin, they grieve in their heart that they fall short of God. They, they would wish that it was different but they try as they might, they, they have such a sense of God's holiness that they, it grieves them that they fall short. They strive for a godly character, but it, they, they run up against their own sin and their own selfishness and their own pride. It grieves them. Jesus said, that's the true disciple. He said, they will be comforted. Christ will lift them up and forgive them. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, those who deeply long and yearn for a righteousness that is not their own, because they know with Isaiah that um, their righteousness are only like filthy rags. Is that, what, is that your sense of your righteousness? Do you hunger for Jesus' righteousness? To be other than you are? To be clothed with something that's new, something that's pure, something that's better than you, Jesus says they will be filled. And we know that's with Christ's righteousness. Our spiritual condition of any Christian is someone who always knows that they need, they deeply need Jesus. Because that's the Christmas message, isn't it? That's who he is to us. He's our saviour. Well, if you don't think you need saving, well, you're not going to 
accept the message, are you? Do we see it or are we blind? Jesus calls us to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, meaning that we have to ask the necessary question, is this me? Is it you? Is it us? Well, it could be. The way we'll know is in our own self-talk from the heart about ourselves. Deep down, what's the essence of your self-talk as a Christian? What are the deep beliefs you hold which come out again and again? I've listed on your outline a few self-talk statements which I think come from this, these lukewarm sentiments that Jesus made clear in verse 17. The first is this statement, I believe in grace, but if I'm honest, I can't see any place or need for repentance. Now, I have to say that I keep running up against this. Um, sometimes it's there in my own life, I have to admit. Um, I hear it in chaplains in schools nearby. Um, and I'm deeply ashamed to say that was the essence of emotion that was voted down in the Anglican uh, Synod in Adelaide, the, necessi the necessity of repentance for salvation. It was a motion put up saying, we believe this, right? Voted down. Voted down. Um, now we ask ourselves, ha ha haven't they read these seven letters? Or, or the message of Jesus? The time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's not the Anglican, only the Anglicans who have an issue with this. It's right across the board. And here's how it happens. We hear about grace, we rightly believe that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but then we make a wrong leap. We say that because salvation is by grace, and because Jesus died for the sins of the world, that means, must mean, no one will be punished. It must mean that everyone goes to heaven, which means really, when you think about it, there's no need for anyone to repent if we're all saved, right? It's like we latch on to the first thing that Jesus says to the woman caught in adultery in John 8. Do you remember that moment? Okay, so here's a woman, she's caught in the act, and Jesus comes upon her as she's about to be stoned to death. But he, the saviour, puts himself sort of in front of her and then he bends down and starts drawing in the dust. And um, he says, whoever's without sin, let them cast the first stone. And one by one, those holding the stones drop their stones and walk away, the oldest first, until the youngest. And then Jesus looks up and he says to the woman, well, is no one left? And neither do I condemn you. Now that is grace, isn't it? That is grace. Here is a woman who's clearly undeserving, caught in the act, but he steps in and he rescues her from judgment and death. It's a wonderful picture of what he does for everyone who believes. But then he tells her to repent. He says, go and leave your life of sin. Now, many people love that story and they latch onto the first bit and they don't pay attention to the second bit. But to do that, to say that, oh, Jesus just doesn't condemn, but then to ignore his call for repentance is to totally miss out on understanding the point that the reason why Jesus saves us by grace is so that we would amend our lives and we would live with him as our Lord. Grace and repentance go together. They're not separate. Okay, if, to, if we say we believe in grace, but we don't take repentance seriously in our own lives, I can only assume we're just not reading our Bibles because repentance is all the way through it. 
It's as if people have put their fingers in their ears when Jesus says to his disciples, cultivate your fear of the Lord as well as your love. We want to accept the love. God loves me. But Jesus says to his disciples, cultivate your fear of the Lord too. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of, him who, of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then he says, oh, by the way, God loves you. you know, you're worth more than many sparrows. But both go together, they're not separate. Cultivate your fear of the Lord as well as of his love. Why do I go on about this? Because it's possible to get Jesus' great promise of grace in verse 20, but be completely oblivious to the context of what he said in the verse before. Look at the verse before, right? He says in the words before, be earnest and repent. Repentance is the context of grace. Be honest and repent, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will open up that door and we'll come in and eat with them and they with me. Do you hear him say? To say we believe in grace but we don't need to repent is to be lukewarm. It's people saying, I believe in grace but actually I don't really care. Don't talk about repentance, don't talk about grieving over sin. Um, or about trusting more deeply, or loving more fully, or knowing God better, or worshipping more joyfully, or serving sacrificially, I don't need a thing, and truth be told, I don't really care about changing my life. And yet, Romans 2 says that the purpose of God's kindness is to lead us to repentance. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realising that God's kindness leads us towards repentance? Or Titus 2, it's God's grace which teaches us to say out loud no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age while we wait for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. God's grace teaches us to say no to sin. When we see the purpose of grace and the changed life it's meant to lead to, repentance isn't an inconvenient extra we'd rather ignore. It becomes a constant lived out goal in our week. Every week I'm thinking, what sin do I need to repent of? This is the mark of the disciple, right? Okay, because it grieves you. You want to be godly, like God. You want to live a life that's worthy of grace, that not, doesn't run counter to it. Okay. Uh, nor do people, I think, who are lukewarm, care about other people's spiritual condition. Back in April, when Mark Peterson visited, he challenged us as a church to pray that God from our church would raise up someone who would step forward to go into overseas cross-cultural mission work. Did you miss that challenge? If you heard it, have you prayed about this? Does it matter? Does it matter to us as a church? I'm the pastor, this is a challenge to me, I'm preaching to me, right? One test of whether we care is whether we pray about other people's salvation personally, ourselves or as a church. Paul in Romans chapter nine, in great anguish of heart, as he was thinking about the eternal state of his fellow Jews, he said, I wish that I were cursed and cut off for the sake of Christ, sorry, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, 
those of my own race, the, the people of Israel, wow. Imagine feeling it that much that you could say that honestly. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, prayed, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. Now maybe that's too extreme for you, but does it matter to you in your heart where people are with the Lord? Because how we pray is an indicator of our own spiritual condition and whether we're lukewarm. Another is whether we strive in our own stumbling way with all our own personal inadequacies and imperfections to talk about Jesus as we can. I mean, none of us are brilliant evangelists, but, and, and I know it's a difficult environment, you know. Is he for Lau? Well, from him we learnt that there are things we're gonna pay if we speak. From the Manly Seven, we learnt we have to be even careful about what we wear, lest you get written off. From Andrew Thorburn, we learnt we have to be careful about who you even associate with. It's not as if the world is saying, we love you, we want to hear what you're saying. I get that. But does the spiritual condition of others weigh on our hearts so that we, with all our frustrating desire, we, we fumblingly try? Or don't we really care? You know, if you know what you've been saved from, you'll value it, you'll care. If we know what we've been saved to, we'll value it, we'll care. And because we'll care, it's gonna come out at some point or another. Finally, a lukewarm person says, it's not that I really don't care about changing my life or other people's spiritual condition. Truth be told, sorry, it's not that I don't just care about those things, it's I don't really care about people at all. Um, I just live for me. In 1 John 3, John writes, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Or in chapter four, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It's impossible to have received the love of God in your life and then not somehow be motivated to love other people. Now, as a church, we have this in our vision, don't we? To love God, to love each other, to love others. Are we a lukewarm church? I asked a couple of people that in the congregation this week. What do you think? Are we a lukewarm church? I asked one person, and as soon as I asked that question, their face fell. I said, why, what's going on? And that person said, I just wished we loved each other better. Now, you may have been on the receiving end of other people loving you, so it's not the case that it doesn't happen at all. But it was an immediate reaction of distress when they thought about it. Are we lukewarm? We have to ask this question, don't we? Well, what hope is there for the lukewarm? Verse 18. Laodicea boasted in their wealth, but Jesus counseled them to buy from him gold refined in the fire so that they could become rich. In Laodicea, they were proud of their soft black wool, their Armani suits. Jesus said, you need white clothes to cover your shameful nakedness. In Laodicea, they took pride in their eye medicine. Jesus says, you need salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. What are these things? Gold refined in the fire. Um, the best reference is 1 Peter 1 verse seven, uh, their faith. 
of greater worth than gold, which needs to be refined through fire, the fire of testing. They have to go through some suffering, actually, to wake them up and for their faith to be proved genuine. White clothes to wear refers to the need to be washed in Christ's blood, to be covered in his righteousness. Chapter seven, verse 13, they need him. And to, to, to receive him, they need to realize that they need him. Their eyes need to be awake to the fact that, spiritually speaking, they are naked. Sal for the eyes. They need to see things as they really are, which is exactly why Jesus is actually speaking to them and writing this letter. It's penned by himself, who is the faithful and true witness in verse 14. And that brings us lastly to Jesus' invitation to the lukewarm to repent. This invitation isn't given to the average Christian because the average Christian, brothers and sisters, is a true Christian. Uh, They are not lukewarm. The invitation is given to the lukewarm Christian who is someone who I believe is Christian in name only but not substance. The trick is they don't realize it. So it could be us, we have to think. It's to the, it's to the person who truth be told has it, doesn't really think that they need Christ. Not in their life in an ongoing sense but instead has been puffed up with proud and their pride and therefore minimized the wonder of grace and therefore see no need of repentance in their life. Guess what, Jesus is offering such a person, and it could be you or me, grace again. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. He says, but you'll have to change your life, so be earnest and repent. You remember how the Laodiceans prided themselves on not being beholden to Rome? Well, I'm told that Rome still flexed its muscle over Laodicea. Roman soldiers could come in and commandeer houses. They could move in and station themselves there, take control. Jesus is no such bully. Here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. He's doing the same for you. He's knocking. He's not pushing his way in. He's knocking. He's waiting for you to voluntarily open up the door to your life. You might be afraid of what will happen if such a great one comes in. You don't need to be afraid. Um, People back then had three main meals a day. Breakfast was very simple, bread dipped in wine. Lunch was a simple snack packed as kind of a picnic you could eat on the run by the side of the road. But the evening meal, the evening meal was the one to enjoy. It was the one to linger over. It was the one to have friends and family there. It was the one to extend hospitality to someone else through. You didn't hurry through that meal. And that is the meal that Jesus speaks of when he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. Do you hear what he's offering? Not dominance, not oppression, Fellowship, life shared, a personal and intimate relationship with, yes, the Lord, but how does he describe himself, the ruler of God's creation, but a relationship which, when there's repentance, true repentance, earnest repentance, turning away from sin, leaving it behind, seeing Jesus, surrendering your life to him as Lord, when that is real, there is then promised Astounding grace, verse 21. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat with me, sorry, to sit with me, beg your pardon, on my throne, 
just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Did you hear that? I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. That is mind-boggling. Next week in chapter four, we're going to see heaven. You've got to come. <laughs> heaven opened up with God on his throne. Astounding. Then the week after, December 18th, we're going to see Revelation 5. Jesus on the throne. But here, do you hear what he's saying? He is saying, if anyone turns around, he will give the right to sit with him on his throne. Now, if that is not a promise worth changing your life for, I do not know what is. There is nothing greater. So if it is you, if it is us, and Jesus has been speaking to us as a whole church, because he says, if anyone has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We need to repent. We need to repent. Almighty God, we are so grateful to the Lord Jesus Christ for speaking these words to us, and we are thankful for your Spirit for driving them home, and yet in ourselves, we see evidence of times when we ourselves have been like this, blind to our spiritual condition, puffed up. We think we don't need you, and it's evidenced in how little we pray, or how little we feel in our souls that we need you. we realize that we are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind like the Laodiceans. Have mercy on us, Heavenly Father. Have mercy on us. Forgive us. May Christ grow in our hearts so that we realize with increasing, like, you know, that grips us that we need him and he is all sufficient. And so we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would come and take control. Take control. We grieve our sin, we turn from it, we do not want to walk in it, we need your righteousness, have mercy upon us, for Christ's sake, and we are so grateful at the promise of grace for him to come in and eat with us, and the astounding promise to sit with him on your throne, our little minds cannot comprehend this, but thank you for your untold grace. Amen.